Hi, everybody, and welcome to John Hennigan's Old Time Radio Show. So glad you could join us. It's going to be really terrific. we got some really wacky, zany old records for you tonight. Boy, oh boy. It's, it's going to be a swell time. <laughs>
I need that. All right. Uh, it's May 28th, 2017. Uh, this is the Old Time Radio Show. And if you haven't guessed it already, we're here with Jonathan Ward, hey. the notorious <laughs> ethnic vernacular music collector. Yes. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for being here. Oh, man. So yeah. before we get into you and uh, your whole deal, so tell everybody what, what we just heard. Oh, yeah, sure. That uh, Well, the thing that uh, the little instrumental there was from Kazakhstan. The one, the second one, the one we just yes, heard. Yes, the, yeah. the one you just heard was that from was Kazakhstan. That was incredible, yeah. Um, from 1948. Really? Wow. Yeah, and it's a solo. It's kind of unusual to hear a solo on the local instrument called the dombra, which is... Huh. Uh, a two-stringed, really thin, long-necked huh. uh, lute. That's as you can hear. It's kind of like you know, fanned yeah, and yeah. strummed kind of nicely. Yeah, but yeah. it's usually, uh, in my experience and what I've heard, it's usually used to accompany epic songs or folk songs. Right, from, right. From there, it's very typical instrument from Central Asia, and everyone kind of has their own little version of it. But, uh, but that was like a, like a Lonnie Johnson guitar solo. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> Which and I found that very unusual. It's First of all, it's lucky to have any 78s from Kazakhstan to begin with, yeah, but Christ, to, to uh, hear kind of a, an instrumental is different. That was called Sharnayaz, and the player is Temirbek Akhmatov. That was great. Uh, that was pressed on the... We can get into this later, but we can get into the nitty gritty. No, let's do it. Uh, yeah. Tell the people, you know, let's get them all. Uh, well, you know, it's fun <laughs> to get them all hyped up. Yeah, yeah, get <laughs> amped up about the uh, Soviet recording system. Yeah, um, it's kind of funny because the Soviet or the Russians before the Soviet Union was started and, and congealed, and all the satellite states were going on. They they recorded a lot. And those records are really, really rare. Pre-revolution recordings, they didn't. Right. They didn't so much record in Kazakhstan. I don't believe at all. Um, but they did in Uzbekistan and other places like that. And yeah, just, I records have a, just I have some really nice Uzbekistan. But records. prior to 1919, though, that's what I'm talking. Oh wow! And and they were doing it then. This was very tough. Then there was this big blank spot after the revolution, and there wasn't a lot of this kind of vernacular recording being done it was really about building nation state kind of thing then stalin of all people thought that um it would be good for the 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 socialist union to record uh um you know local cultures like for morale like for na to build national identity that's huh. why these recordings Just have were records made of it. yeah exactly yeah. now of course in that body of work you're going to have a lot of recordings that sound exactly like that but the lyrics are about like building co a collective farming system or something <laughs> right, like that right. so if you're not familiar with cyrillic or, or the or russian or anything like that you could be listening to something that sounds totally folkloric to you but the lyrics are really uh, propaganda. Right, right. There's also tons of bad communist opera. I'm sorry, it's kind of musically not that interesting. Right, right. Uh, historically interesting, but I've musically. I've come across some of that. Yeah, yeah, there's a ton of it. And that was also all on the same great big Soviet one label. It's a state run label. The state run label had all these different plants all across the Soviet Union. Hmm. And one of them was in Tashkent in Uzbekistan. And that one in Tashkent issued a lot of these amazing Central Asian 
recordings. Well, we'll have to go there and find them. Yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Maybe, you know, Trump can get us some. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure he'd... Uh, he knows a lot about it, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> He's deep into this stuff. But, um, oh, anyway, well, before that was uh, a piece from Mongolia. Yeah, that was really beautiful, too. Really dark and uh, just beautiful. That is more probably more of the epic song style, you know. And that is on a really small label, uh, the Mongolian People's Republic label. Hmm. It's Never hard to trip that. over those. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's also known as BNMAU is, okay. is what it looks like in Cyrillic. And the BNMAU stands for Bugd Nairamdak Mongol Ard Ulz, which is the Mongolian translation of... Uh, Mongolian People's Republic. And, of course, I pronounced that really, really badly, and I apologize. Yeah, you did better than I could do. But, uh... All right, so I want to ask you, um, among other things... Yeah. Like, how did you get interested in, you know, old music from around the world, and specifically uh, 78 collecting? Like, Well, it wasn't too far away from this very spot. Really? (laughs) Yeah. We're Uh, in New York City now, as we speak. Yes, in New York. Um... I was living here through most of the 90s and when I was really young at the, I was you know in my early 20s and uh of course I was already a record collector and a fanatic one and but just kind of a sponge and I didn't you know a bit green obviously but just really interested in in all kinds of of music at that time. We're talking like LPs, like just yes, uh, yes, yeah. of course, yeah. Me too. When I was young, I was just like a rabid collector. Yeah. Of, and people used to kind of make fun of me, and it wasn't until later I realized, like, and I think this is what you're talking about too. Like, I just had anything and everything I could get my hands on. Yeah. Like in my collection, like I mean everything from you know heavy metal to like. Punk, alternative, jazz, yep. free jazz, classical, yep. just anything. I was interested in just hearing anything. Absolutely, me too. And it wasn't really until I, I, I got into 78s that I realized in retrospect that I wasn't quite satisfied with the music I was hearing. I don't know if it was the same for you or not. But when I when I found like music from this period in particular, which is a vague term uh, in the ethnic music that we're, we're listening to now because the period extends much more. Mm-hmm. To me, anyways, than what's interesting in America, where you know the music got a little homogenized in the mid '30s in in America, but I think not that in happened other in many other places world. too. But not yeah. everywhere. Not everywhere. No. Anyways, uh, um, so that that's the kind of collector you were with uh, with LPs. You I just... was, but when I got into '78s, I did not discard the other things that I was listening to. I right. still felt a deep connection to a lot of that those kinds of musics, but. I, you know, over time, the 78 collecting kind of takes over because of how intense it can be. Yeah, it's, and, yeah uh, it almost has I started to as a country life. jazz and blues collector in on my very modest <laughs> income as a young person. Yeah, yeah. So I met collectors me here in New York who, who uh, introduced me to country music, and I was buying, you know, Dr. Humphrey Bait and Dr. Smith's Champion Hoss Hair Pullers. I and, started the same place. And yeah. all of those great great different i first bought jimmy rogers here and frank hutchison and all of those great great you know canonical performers and a few of the non-canonical ones too right uh once i started but okay there were there were you know obviously two big influences um in terms of me completely switching gears and saying 
I just would like to focus on the rest of the world because everyone else seems to be doing such a great job with American music that I don't feel like I need to do it. I'm, I'm perfectly satisfied listening to Yazoo reissues and, and the great stuff that was coming out just in the 90s. There were, you know, couldn't swing a dead cat and not hit a reissue project coming out. They were just, they were coming out and they sounded great, you know. Right, right. So, but once I heard that Malagasy collection that Pat Conti and, and Richard put out on, Richard Nevins put out on, on Yazoo. The Secret Museum of Mankind. And the Secret Museum collection. While I didn't feel, I certainly didn't feel the need to ape that because, or, or ape that collecting style because it was very new to me. But what the most important thing that that did to me was, was it made me understand that the global recording uh, the world of, of, of recording around the world was so huge and so much more mammoth than I ever thought it was. And that you could spend a hundred lifetimes trying to get to the bottom of, of all of it close. and you can't even come close. And that's satisfying for me. I love being the kind of person who just doesn't know what's around the next corner. I don't know what's on this record. I want to listen to it. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of the risk that... You, when you buy something, you don't know what's on it. You just have this sort of draw. I like that. And there's something really different in the, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to say the level of satisfaction, but it's hard to put into words, but when you're when you're finding these records that aren't on a, a CD or online mm-hmm. or on an LP somewhere that you really like can only hear it on your record, you know, sure, some, somebody else might have one or probably mm-hmm, does sure. somewhere, but I mean... Uh, it, uh, for me too, that that's really really satisfying. When I go through my ethnic records, and I have to listen to them all the time because it's the only place to hear them. You know, like that's where really you know uh, where in my blues, country, jazz. You know, let's face it, most of that most of that stuff I already heard on a Yazoo reissue or somewhere mm-hmm. like that. Not yeah. all of it, but you know, some of it. Yeah, uh, the majority of it. It's still deeply satisfying for me to listen to Charlie Patton or well there's nothing you know, there's nothing like string there's nothing like <laughs> listening to it in your own home yeah, yeah and there's nothing like listening to it with other people there there is something I satisfying about I love having people over listening to records and, yeah you know getting people's different reactions and and then having everyone bring some records and mm-hmm. that's a lot of fun all right so all right we better uh Let's hear two more. Yeah, let's so you do wanna, it. You want to tell the people what the next two are? Sure. Then we're going to go into Brazilian string band music here. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, there's there's some incredible performers in the early days of Brazilian music. And um, string band music was really kind of done by 1931. And it only kind of started in about 1928. <laughs> There yeah, were some there were yeah. some later ones by those performers that are excellent and we're going to hear an example of a later one and one right in the sweet spot. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. 
incredible. So that was uh, Lou Paris Miranda. But actually, that that second one was is that is that Lou Paris playing with his brother? No, that's actually just his brother and his oh, brother's band. Just his brother. Yeah, his yeah. brother Joao. Okay. Um, the first one was a Lou Paris Miranda recorded pretty late, 1945. He was still an active musician at that time, but he was not recording solo stuff at all, really, so much. He was just, like, accompanying He was people? accompanying. Yeah. You, you, sometimes you'd barely hear him in the background. But, I mean, he had a very active career in radio and things like that. Right, But right. not, like, that type of music was just way out of fashion by that point. Yeah, so sad, because... But I mean, he would appear recorded well and yeah, sounds exactly like it's what he was doing. Exactly, yeah. yes. And 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 he did this one record, you wouldn't even know it's by him. It's just under the name Quarteto Brazil. Yeah. That's it. Ridiculous. And uh he did they did one record with that with that name and that's it. <sighs> and that was nineteen forty five, which is pretty late for for anything sounding even remotely like that at that time. Hmm. Luperci did come back and, and the name of that song is uh Hebolisu, which means uh um, All right, we didn't tell him. Kind of like uh, that's the that's that was the first one of the. That was the first one, yeah. yeah. And that I had to double check with a native speaker, but uh, that means almost like a rustling or a buzz in the crowd, like Mm. the crowd's going a buzz or something like that. And the Shoro titles, that's a Shoro, by the way, for those who don't know, uh, a classic Brazilian uh, instrumental song form in three parts usually. Right. Um, And. The Shoro performed by string bands. Well, Shoro had many different waves. It was very popular in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, And you have some of the great artists of that time and composers of that time, like Ernesto Nazare, Chiquinho Gonzaga, other people like that. Then the second wave was sort of like uh, Pichinguinha, Luperci Miranda, um, very other... Some, some of the most incredible instrumentalists during that second wave period. Then it kind of died. Like, early 30s, samba became the thing, but not the old-school, like, rough-and-tumble kind of samba. This was a smooth, uh, you know, like, four-part harmony, Johnny Mercer-style-sounding yeah. vocal that was very, very popular, but with an Afro-Brazilian beat to it. So it still had some core Brazilian, Afro-Brazilian qualities to it. Generally, I would say the vocals got pretty smooth. You, may, I, you know, you could blame that on radio, just like you could. I've come hear. across a few of those, yeah, where I, I hear the first eight seconds and I think, oh, this is going to be great, and then the vocals. And come then in you got a little too much. Yes, and then, uh, but <coughs> that that those records are still, you know, super popular in Brazil. They mean a hmm. lot to Brazilians with those old school vocalists. I, I almost kind of equate it in the same way people love Frank Sinatra and right, stuff right. like that. Yeah, you know, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. But the Shoro stuff w- had died down at that point. Um, so yeah, and then the second one. So that was Lou Percy Miranda, the greatest bandolin player in Brazilian history. Right. The Paganini of the bandolin. Right. All of whom, whose rec- uh, 78s are extraordinarily rare, if not just unfindable. Yeah. Um, and then the second one was a, a very rare parlophone from 1929 featuring his brother's band. His brother was named Joao. And th- his group was called Os Desafiadores do Norte, which means uh, like the, oh God, it's like the, uh, the aggressors from the north or something, <laughs> something <laughs> like that. Um, Interesting title for that tune. And that the name of that song is translates to Crying in the Pines. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, and he he also stopped recording. Joao, I believe, moved back up because they were from the north of Brazil, and he moved back up to Recife, Brazil, in I think 1931. And his career was literally three years on record. And that was it. Huh. So I want to go back. So you 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 know listened to Secret Museum, and you mm. this world kind of opened up to you, and you decided. You wanted to like abandon like uh, American music more or less, but w- what I'm interested to know is like ha- how or did it just all happen at the same time? Like, how did you become such uh, you know uh, a researcher? Like, you know, you know everything about like for instance, like for me w- when I collect records, like I don't normally know anything about the record. You may have picked that up if you ever listened to these podcasts, especially <laughs> about ethnic music. You know, and um, and I'm actually, I mean, I'm fascinated by you know, like the information that you have, and I would, I, I guess, I just don't, I don't know, like, I don't have the time or something, or just my brain doesn't work that way is probably the real answer. But what I'm interested in is how you know you're you're like a researcher, anyways, right? Like you were. Uh. I mean, I mean, how did you get so interested in saying it's one thing to say like you're going to find these records? That's crazy enough, mm-hmm. right? And then yeah. you find the records, and you're going to find out every detail about the record companies, labels. I feel, where I feel like I, I owe it to the culture that produced the record to learn about it. I think it's great attitude, but still, how do you do it? Um, it's not as difficult as you think. It's, uh, you know. In this day and age, it's very easy to to find out information. Well, that's true. It, it, it gets easier and easier. Even I, can I don't. I, I think like you know things, when but, when when people were producing were doing CDs it before it was even that easy. Yeah, right? I know, but it's 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 like a little quest, you know. I first so of all, I don't think you can put it into words. I think it's just your brain is part of it is your brain, way. but I could never do it without other people. So I will contact and go hat in hand to people and say can you help me with this for example when i did releases just for like Dusty you used Digital, a network to find records or use network and i talk to people and i know people around the world who are interested in this thing ethnomusicologists linguists people who i would consider and that's just friends from contacting people with questions. blindly yeah blindly yeah but i th- also think it's important it, like you said you know, it, it when you look at it that way, it's not that difficult. It's just, no. you got to do it. You just got to do it. And I f- it comes, that part comes naturally to me in a lot of ways, maybe. But I also feel that it's, it's easy in a lot of ways. It's, yeah. it, it's, it's smoke and mirrors, you know. I mean, uh, that's really one of the most, most satisfying things about, about collecting is, is connecting with the music connecting with the object after you've already connected the music because you can learn so many interesting things about it and then it brings you deeper into a culture that is not your own and that's well, where you that, can really that's expand. the part that i find the most yeah. interesting and that i wish i did you know was able to for whatever reasons i don't you know to do more research like you do but then again i think you can i think i have your little blog and, you know <laughs> i think you can do it i mean really i think anyone can no, do no, it no i, I know i could it's just not in my nature like yeah. to me like I, I i think like between finding the records listening to the records working like sometimes insane hours and all that stuff i do and then having a band and like you know, like i gotta draw the line somewhere so i just say i not that i consciously think it out but yeah i would love to like know every single record from my ethnic mm-hmm. shelves like you know where this is recorded who's on it what type of music exactly is it what instruments and then i just 
I wait to read your liner notes or your <laughs> blog or something, and you uh, know, pick up like sixty percent of it that way. Yeah, and yeah, figure right, that right, that's right, enough. Right. You know, not that I'm not totally interested in it, but right, right. It's it's just I, I don't know if it's a time thing or if it's well it's just the way my brain works. Like I'm I'm so interested in listening to the music, and. I don't know. I just need more time. I need more time. But like you yeah, said, it takes you probably, a lot of time. You probably, yeah, it takes a lot of. Well, once you get yeah. started, I'm sure it's like anything else. Well, that might be in a way one of the reasons why I abandoned collecting country jazz blues. Not because I didn't love it, which of course I do. It's amazing. Uh, but to narrow the focus where I, I mean, and like narrowing the focus to the rest of the world is a ridiculous statement, you know? I mean, right, right. In fact, it, it's actually expanded hugely. Right. But just, just for collecting purposes. Uh, and, you know, I'm talking about the economics of collecting and the space needs of collecting. Sure. <laughs> you know, like I can't collect everything. I keep my collection quite lean. Well, you see... Where yeah. we are here, like I have the same constraints. Yeah, you got to do what you got to do, and yeah. and and it's. I also feel it's really good to rotate your collection out. Uh, it's never good to keep anything forever because it was never yours to begin with. And uh, well, that's true. And and I just uh, I, I, and then you just like keep it going because you as a person, this is going to sound you know pretentious, and I realize that, but you as a person change if you're a collector and it's what we yeah. do and we have fun doing it we you know, enjoy it we're constantly consuming different kinds of music and it takes us into different directions and you as a person will obviously change over years and why wouldn't your collection change the same way yeah you know? and, and something that i picked up from crumb many years ago when we first met that he told me is you have to purge your records like he, in other words like part of what you're doing like collecting these records is you know, you're deciding what the, the great stuff is that you're going to keep. And, of course, over time, everything, like you said, changes. Your perspective yeah. changes. Yep. When I first heard Turkish music, I was so blown away by whatever it was about it that I liked that I just put every Turkish record on my shelf. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, 15 years later... Mm -hmm. You know, 90% of that is gone, yep. and yep. now what I have is, you know, I couldn't even dream of having, when I first started collecting Turkish records, some of the Turkish records that I have, yeah. and yeah. I don't need the other ones. Right. Right. And now if I, if I lived in a mansion, maybe I'd have more, but at the same time, there's something, there's also something uh, rejuvenating about getting rid of, the, you say, like, okay, I have these 50 records, and really, these 25 or 30 are the ones I'm always going to listen to. I need mm -hmm. this one because of this, and this yeah. one because of this, and this one kind of sounds like that one, so I can mm -hmm. get rid of it. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or something. There's something going on where, yeah. you know, you're you're deciding what the best of the best is through, you know, your years of listening. And, and I don't actually and, believe there's a best of the best because mm -hmm. that's all extraordinarily subjective. And and I'm I I love the fact that there are some records in my collection that are virtually worthless and I only keep them because I love them. Oh, I, I have tons of five ten dollar records that I can't live without. Yep. It has nothing to do with the value. No, no, and that's important because when you're when you're interested in music from around the world, the the paradigm is just so different than other collecting focuses, whether it's classical R and B or jazz or blues or country where a lot of that is already set in stone. 
and when you are right, are out doing determine what is good and exactly what is you don't have to listen to any of that shit that's what's so interesting to me is the process that you go through whether you realize it or not of you, you listen to it and you listen to more and then i hear you know some of your records from either your blog or you, you put out a cd comp or you play it, and mm. then my mind expands even more and then i hear this and hear that and then over time my opinions change about what i like and what i don't and the like. same thing happens when i go to collectors houses and i yeah, hear something and i'm like it. wow god how, how come i didn't know about this it's yeah, yeah. great that's you why know? we do it love yeah. it yeah. yeah and that's that's really fun yeah it's good stuff all right so what's next oh we get some deep stuff here okay why don't, why don't we get deep uh <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know about you, but I've always felt that Japan was really interesting and overlooked by a lot of collectors because there was tons of records that came out in Japan. Yes, yeah, so a many, lot right? of them sound the same, you know. Right. And uh, but there's really, really interesting types of regional music that came out in Japan, and and there's almost yeah, no reissues, stuff. you know. Right, right. Almost none. Yeah. There's just a couple out there, it's true. Uh, the, but the, the Japanese records that I heard really, um, in, except for, you know, in the last four or five years, was from Crumb playing them for me. There's some beautiful ones, and really. He has, yeah, he has great stuff. When, when I first heard it, it was like going into another world. I couldn't believe that there was this thing out there that I completely missed and overlooked. Yep. Yeah, yeah and, and the industry was very big there. Uh, they had many different labels. Yeah. Obviously, Victor was a really, really strong. And Victor in Colombia and Japan, just huge, you know. Uh, but there were other early labels, too, Orient and Nipponophone and Nito and, and, and different things. It was very active, man. And yeah. they also recorded Korean music, which is extraordinarily rare. Even though there's a lot recorded, it's rare, really tough. I have in my collection literally like I think three Korean records that I've wow. kept. And a lot. They're, they're tough. But so I thought, yeah, we got, here are two wildly different types of music from Japan.
Yeah, man. <laughs> that was great. Both of those are great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's uh that was from Okinawa and um the I mean obviously a really interesting place if you know about it. It's uh really wasn't even part of Japan until the late 1800s, but it's hundreds of islands in between 
mainland Japan or the main islands of Japan and Taiwan in the in the ocean, and it was its own kingdom for many years, the Ryukyu Kingdom. Um, and I believe, as as in terms of recorded sound, it was a bit of an afterthought until quite later. Um, I was introduced to this music by a fellow collector, by Izumi from uh, Japan. Izumi oh, really? Kimishida, yeah. Who collects this music? And he offered me some, and I thought, well, this is really interesting. I'd love to hear it. And I thought, well, this is unlike anything I've ever heard. It feels like That's it's right in between the music of East Asia and Southeast Asia, almost just right smack dab in between. And it's a fascinating, isolated part of the world that has its own deep, rich culture that's just different. It's different from Japan, it's different from Southeast Asia, it's certainly different from China. It's its, its own interesting culture. It has it there, they speak in their own dialect, everything. It's you know, un, un, not intelligible to people who who speak proper Japanese, you know, it's it's peculiar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what was happening, I guess in the 50s is that there were some small client labels out of stores based in in Okinawa that had records pressed by Japanese Victor, which was JVC by that time in the late fifties. This is from nineteen fifty seven. The singers are that uh, was recorded in nineteen fifty seven. Yes, my yes, God, yeah, uh, on a small private label called Marutaka, uh, and the artists are Itokazu Kame and Hunakoshi Kyo. They were actually very, very well known. Okinawan singers of that time, like the apparently the queens of Okinawan singing. Is this record like extremely hard to find? Oh yeah, yeah, it's tough. Yeah, yeah. But it's not like, but you know, I mean, I found it in the states. Really? So huh. you never know because I mean, for whatever you know, not to get into it, but there's a giant American military presence in Okinawa, huh. and to get into a discussion of that would be a political discussion, but. I believe that some of those records have have gone into the United States, probably brought back as souvenirs of local music. Hmm. I've found two, even a 12-inch, in the U.S. Hmm. Um, anyway, that that was two songs. Believe it or not, that was actually two separate songs together, huh, sort of seamlessly that. adjoined. Uh, one <coughs> is called Tanchi Mi Bushi. And that song is about the tradition of harvesting the sururu fish on the beach of Ona in Okinawa. And the next song that they sort of jump right into about a minute in or a little bit more is called Katsurin Bushi. And that's a song about how the uh, local fishermen long for the beautiful women of Katsurin Island, or it's sort of a peninsula, I think, but Katsurin Island. And the reason I know this is because it was translated for me by... Uh, someone people may know named uh, Mark Jihoon Suk, who's a Korean, young Korean and uh, uh, Japanese music researcher. He's Korean, but he researches a lot of East Asian music and huh. discography, and he was very helpful letting me know about what this aggressively harsh and wonderful song is, you know? Yeah, yeah. I love being confronted by music that you know, a lot of collectors would just run from the room. 
because of it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, like... It's not Western at all. It no. doesn't have anything that people can grab onto in the West. Yeah, you have to let go of that. Yeah, you do, yeah. which is, that's, to me, is when things get good. Yeah, yeah, because exactly. Because then, then your brain is actually actively grappling. I had this discussion with know? someone else recently that when my brain finally let go of, like, my Western pre, you know... Uh, uh, judgment of, of music that's when I, it really opened up for me and I could take can, just about anything in and yeah if you allow it it can be really interesting yeah uh, the thing the piece before that was uh, Japanese court music by the Imperial Court Orchestra that's beautiful too Gagoku music and it was recorded some but not a lot actually yeah. um, that was recorded about 1946 for Columbia Japanese Columbia hmm. and uh it's a 1,200-year-old music, you know. It's just ancient. They still play the same way. And uh, one of the things that I love about that that gives you this almost wobbly feeling when you're listening to it is the sound of the the free reed in the background, which is like yeah, yeah. the tall thing that you're sort of blowing into. It's called a show in, in Japan, but it's just an amazing, high-pitched, weird harm. Is it a harmonica or a, what is it, you know? But it's a beautiful instrument. I love the sound of that yeah. piece, you know. That's great. Uh, that's called Etin Raku is the name of that one. But still performed at weddings, apparently. Really? Piece. Yes. <laughs> Probably not by that band. But. <laughs> All right, so next we're going to go to Martinique, is that right? Yeah, we're doing a complete 180. This is our palate cleanser. <laughs> these are, these are <laughs> this is uh, probably the most Western sounding of it. Yeah, absolutely. Right yeah, absolutely. These two. But, yeah. but really, really great music, yeah. These guys were from Guadeloupe, these guys. But they were part of the Martinique and West Indies scene in Paris.
was actually that, we uh, to? that was um, a group called Quarteto Caraquita, and they were from Venezuela, and that was a Lionel Belasco tune. Oh, yeah, that yeah, Belasco recorded but was never released. Huh. Uh, he recorded it in 1933 for Victor, uh, and it never came out. Um, that is on a small local uh, Venezuelan label called Terpiel. And, uh, you know, Donald, Don Hill, you know, the, the historian of, of early Caribbean music. and He's uh, been on the show, yeah. Yeah, that's right, of course. Yeah, yeah. how could I forget? Um I think in the liner notes to his Lionel Belasco collection, I mean, he he mentions that in a way that music, the Belasco recordings, when they were recorded, that music was already out of fashion. You know, it was already considered old. Right, right. So when I found this group performing these songs in this exact old waltz style, just about 20 years later, this is about 1947. I was like, wow, these guys must be really dedicated if they're yeah, in Venezuela yeah. on a local label, going back to an unreleased Belasco tune, probably finding the charts and performing it with Quattro and everything. Yeah. Uh, the Venezuela. There's always record- little subcultures of things like that that are still happening in places, but yeah. But usually they're either watered down or unrecognized by the yeah. mainstream mass media, so it's very unlikely they get recorded. And yeah, and this is obviously a much nicer recording. It's clearly oh. post-war, but it's yeah, more it's or less the same. Great. Yeah, My more God, or less the yeah. same musically as what it was earlier. Yeah, re- yeah. I mean, I knew it reminded me of something, and then when you said Belasco, I was yeah, like, yeah, of course, straight up Belasco yeah. waltz. Um, <laughs> That label's kind of interesting. It didn't last for too long. The, in order to find more information about this band, this is exactly the kind of thing I would you know, be up late at night doing. Uh, <laughs> and we're glad you do. I wanted to find more, about, more out about this Terpial label and what their story was right. so I'd, and, and who this band was and who the members were and whatnot. And, and it took me some digging, but I found a journalist in Venezuela, and I wrote to him in Spanish, and and uh, we communicated a bit. And first of all, Venezuela right now is not in good shape. Right. I mean, it is really tough going <laughs> things going on right now. Well, the guy wrote me right back, and he had some really interesting information about the brothers who started this label. Oh, they were both um, uh, in opposition to the uh, dictator who's about to come into office, and that guy who did come into uh, the dictator did, did take control after that in the 50s made their life living hell and uh, one of them was jailed and their uh, company was burned down mm. and but eventually one of them became a senator one of the brothers who started this label but the Quartetto Caraquita as far as I know they only did about four records and that's it but huh. I think there might be an LP but yeah just another kind of lost uh little little tidbit there yeah the one before that is is great uh d- dual piano yeah style. dual piano by two brothers i never heard anything like that from the from the martinique uh, i period. think it might be the only thing of its kind yeah it's only one side it's, it's really the, they're not on the flip side it's great but these guys were pretty active in other bands from that time uh the sure. martial claude martial and his brother bruno martial are playing those and they were brothers from guadalupe and the title, Cracador Santi Quan Capstera La, I don't know exactly what it means, but uh, Capster, I'm pronouncing it poorly, is sort of a general name for 
uh, the Guadalupe, I think, area. <laughs> that, that's from French sailors. Um, huh. It's something to do with that. Others, doubtless others can uh, uh, fulfill me and correct my ignorance on that one. Um, yeah. But it's a terrific record. It has been reissued by Frameau, but many years ago. I thought it would be time to oh, cool. bring a I nicer transfer out there. Never heard it. Yeah, it but yeah, it's, it's fun, fun stuff. So now we're going to go to India? Yeah, why not have a couple of solos? Some of my favorite I things love, from I India. love this music, too. So what, what are we going to hear? The first piece is by the amazing, uh, incredible violinist T. Chow Daya from right. about 33. And after that is a sitar solo. Wow, by cool. A guy I know almost nothing about, can find nothing about him, is uh, G.J. Gabriel on okay, sitar. Cool. Let's check it out. Thank you. 
and the whole crowd holds up their lighters. Exactly. Yeah. I got to say, one thing I've learned in this show, because you're always teaching me, uh, but today I've learned you got some good fucking records, my friend. That's the whole idea is to only have good fucking records. That's yeah. it. <laughs> Every That's record the on the shelf That's must the be a goal. winner. That's right. That's the goal. Yeah. Well, you well, it looks like you've achieved it. That that was incredible. Both of those were incredible. My God, I wish the I knew more record, about that Jesus last Christ. one. I don't yeah. know much about it except that it's about about from uh, it's an HMV recording. It's from about 1945, and so he's a North Indian wow. uh, sitar player. And he, uh, it's you know, he's 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 listed, of course, as professor, as many of them are. So he's right, right. somewhat known. But I cannot find much on this G.J. Gabriel. And professor was just like a term of respect, uh, like a formal... I, no, I think it, rather than respect, it means that you had attained some level of, of musical acumen. You know, you had studied, you had that's, risen that's up the musical I meant, ladder. But, yeah. but maybe not like a degree you'd get from no, school. No, not like a degree. Just, exactly, yeah. exactly. Not like a degree. Right. But um, the guy who we heard before that is... is much more known and had a very long career. Uh, T. Chowdaya. Yeah. The reason why he's so fascinating musically, I think, to a lot of people, certainly to me too, is that he, in the late 20s, he developed or basically made a... He added three strings to his violin. So hmm. that's why it sounds so rich and deep and... and and resonating and droney to you know, I hate that phrase in a way, but it, you know it it is kind of it's because it, he has these sympathetic strings that he added to his violin, which I think a lot of people thought was sacrilege, hmm. but uh, he did it to increase the volume during his performances. Huh. Um, but that sort of became his and, thing. And are those like? Do you know? Are they like d just doubled strings? I believe so. They're yeah. doubled strings on three of the strings. So it's much like playing a. A twelve or nine string guitar. It's mm -hmm. the same. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't even notice that. Yeah, that does. now that you say that, I feel like I could hear them. Yeah, <laughs> and he he was a big, uh, you know, recording artist, and and those his earliest recordings are, for me, is when, uh, to me, it would be like the golden era of South Indian recording, which I, in my opinion, started like about nineteen thirty. That's when some of the very best instrumentalists started recording, especially for Columbia Records. Um, and the quality of the recordings, the quality of the musicianship is just so good. They are on fire, really. Oh, these, Excellent these recordings. These last two, I mean, my God, it's two of the most intense records <laughs> I've ever heard. That was a part one of a yeah, part. Both that, of yeah. the second one was its own piece, Rag Dayan G, and the first one was part one of Thanam. They just call it Thanam. It's an improvisation on improvisation on a raga, but I don't know what raga it is. They just list Thanam. Um, and that's like where there's a theme, and then they just go off from there. Yeah, it's a theme. You know, improvisation on a raga. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it's probably sort of. Just like the Middle Easts and 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 their modes in Iranian right. and Middle East and Turkish music, yeah, yeah, yeah similar thing. It's great. Oh. Uh, I great. certainly love Indian instrumental music. I don't even know how you leave the house. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I don't have that many records. <laughs> um, All right, so we're gonna go to uh, one of the things, one of the places that you're known for, 
Yeah, African. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, right? Yeah, I guess so. I think yeah. they, they gave you a statue, right, of greatness. Uh, yeah. Uh, you won a yeah. Grammy for I'll your take any. Uh, Dust to Digital. I did not win a Grammy, no. Oh, you didn't? I'm no, sorry. No, I thought you won. You should I was won. nominated. Um, well, oh, dude, I'll, oh, I'll tell you right I now, never I don't know who win. won, but if I did, I'd go over there right now and grab the Grammy and give it to you. Brian Wilson? Really? I'd love to see that. <laughs> Brian Wilson was in the same category as you? Um, I had no chance. It was Brian Wilson, Paul McCartney, Woody Guthrie, and oh, me. <laughs> well, well, that's just that's just when they don't want to give it to uh, a real... Uh, you know, what was the category? Uh, what is it? Best best historic? Oh, I, I don't want to say... If it's, I always forget if it's best historic or best historical, but I think it's best historic... Oh, album. So, so what one like Pet Sounds reissue? No, the Smile Box. Oh, Smile Box one. Go. And 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 well, you know, Brian Wilson's. It's Brian great, Wilson, you know. Yeah, I mean, but it's know. just kind of jive that they have to stuff him into a category. But that's just because, but nobody knows anything. That's how it goes. Yeah, it's yeah. the Grammys. And 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 from what I understand, uh, anything that's I think over a decade old can fall into that best <laughs> Seriously, so I could be goal, up against right? like a Sublime box set or like a yeah, Matchbox Twenty deep cuts. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. It was the same. Pearl thing. Jam outtakes. Exactly. Studio chatter. No, you can't beat Pearl Jam outtakes, man. No, I know. I know. All right, so tell us a little bit about what we're gonna hear, and then we'll get into the details later. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, I. I was like, kind of like how you described. I, I mean, I collected a lot of African music for a while. Really focused. Well, on, I, I, I was should like a say that my, you were the one who really inspired me to get into it too, and uh, I thank you for that because I have some amazing African records now. And uh, from your your blog, from going over your house, from your reissues, you know, I just learned so much. There's a and lot originally out from there. Pat Conte too. I oh my say gosh, he was, yes. he was the first one that opened me up. Yep. With you know, hands down, secret museum. Yep, hands and down. Yep. The, the two of you guys. If it wasn't for the two of you guys, you know, I'd be listening to Crockett Ward, and you know, that wouldn't be too bad. But mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know if I ever would have made it across the well, sea. So it's funny though, because I mean, we've discussed this before, but I always like to bring up this point, especially because you know, I because I, collectors listen to the show, you know, and yeah, well, and, almost exclusively, and and there's a lot of presuppositions that people will make about the best eras of music. And, you know, we've, we've had this discussion, of course, like I said, but the golden age of African recording, I should, I should also credit Mike Kiefer, who, who is a huge source of knowledge for me myself. I mean, this guy, Mike is not only a great guy and a friend, but um, he has an unbelievable collection of African popular music. He, doesn't tend to go too deep in the traditional stuff at all. He's very focused with the popular music styles from Sub-Saharan Africa. But yeah, what he has, that, yeah. is, it's the biggest collection probably in the world. Yeah, I, I got that say. idea just from talking to him and yeah, and seeing what he so just hearing. It's really it's it's great that I'm lucky that he's in California that we get to hang out. You know, yeah, yeah, but um. Like I said, I mean the the golden age for me when it was not the twenties and thirties for African music, African recording, because Sub-Saharan African recording really happened in fits and starts. Right. It was really delayed by the depression. It didn't start till the late twenties. Really, it didn't get going to late twenties, and even then, it was very specific. Right. You know, you're limited by by trading ports and certain languages and things like that. But once you got to post-war with the advent of reel-to-reel tape and trains and, and the ability for people to travel and record with portable equipment, it was nonstop. I right. mean, just 
esoteric performers, interesting cultures, places that were never recorded before commercially, you know, commercial recordings of just like, this is a commercial yeah. recording? It, Unbelievable. It, it strikes me, too, that, um, you know, you can tell me if you agree with this or not, but, you know, much like early American country music and to a lesser extent, maybe rural blues music, where you can just hear on these records that, you know, these people have never heard music from other areas in some cases and you know ha have their own way of playing their own interpretation of rhythm their own interpretation of melody when you go from area to area you get these strong feelings of like you know these people probably didn't you know the music didn't leave the areas in in huge ways and then of course you have the the music that was actually influenced by western music and everything else and that probably i would i would not say that specifically because what I mean, it's dangerous to get into this territory, really, because we don't know. I mean, I, I can't really say. But what I can say is that in Africa, modern culture and traditional culture are intermixed, you know, all the time. You know, so you could have somebody who sounds as deeply traditional as you could possibly imagine. And the guy might live in a totally, you know, inner city, modern life and living. But I think traditional culture is very deep obviously you right, know, and right. very very ingrained so it's hard to make those judgment calls i think when you hear stuff like that it could be true but it also might not yeah you yeah. know that's yeah, you that's the know. beautiful thing about it you know yeah, in yeah. a way that it's just different from how we live and and uh that what that's what makes it beautiful and different and interesting to listen to and and just react to you know in a way but I've certainly learned that collecting African music really humbles you as a, as just a listener. You know, you don't know what's around the corner. You don't know what it is. You and have you no idea what you're getting. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's and when it comes to collecting and documenting this stuff, there are entire labels that are still popping up in collectors' hands that have never been documented in online or in discographies. Or well, there really is no African discography, but in reissues or in in yeah, in attempts to to yeah. deconstruct this music, entire labels are still incredible ignored yeah. or not even like who knew unknown you know yeah. Yeah. yeah that's also really interesting too you know anyway so so I picked up a couple of a couple records brought a couple records from East Africa now the first one we're gonna play is from Mombasa Kenya. And it's on the great Missouri label, which I know you know. Yeah. East African. There are a uh, lot of great records on this label. It's a wonderful label. Yeah. They issued a lot of records, and every one of them is difficult to find. <laughs> um, but this is Tarab music. This is music influenced by the Persian Gulf, and it is almost exactly like Persian Gulf Khaliji music. Okay, cool. Which I know you like as well. Very excited. Yeah. And then after that, we go into Mozambique. Okay, cool.
Oh my god, great ending. <laughs> yeah. It's like a blind lemon <laughs> Jefferson ending. Exactly. Um wow, really both of those were really great, really intense. Yeah, I just love that vocal on the last one. Yeah, yeah. it's so weird doing it yeah, together. Kind of a cowboy style yeah, yeah, thing. Exactly, that, yeah. That's the from Mozambique. Yeah. Uh probably like mid fifties and uh I kinda like that. There's that repetitive guitar music. They, on, on a lot of the 78s of that time, from Mozambique, they would call this type of music shangan guitar, mm-hmm. a lot of it. And, and shangan... That's a reference to a rhythm? Well, shangan is, is the language and culture. Okay. But it's not really called anymore. It's called tsonga. Tsonga is really what it is today. Uh, I'm not sure if... Shangan might be pejorative now. It might not be a proper thing to use, you know, but I just call it Tsonga music, but it's a precursor to a, a modernized music that came later called Marabenta, this kind of uh, hard-edge guitar, repetitive hard-edge guitar picking. It wasn't like the guitar picking, the gentle strumming and or picking or even hard edge picking that you have from South Africa and Zambia and Zimbabwe from around the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. It's more of this weird kind of like uh, urgent uh, hammering away, yeah, but yeah. still melodious and interesting. You know? Oh, yeah, sure. That's great. Yeah. Um, that artist is Jose Materanza and Josefa, and it's Chingua Valane. I think this is another uh, type of music where you really have to let go of your 
Western predisposition <laughs> to really take it in because when I, when I first heard it, uh, you know, that's not. I was going to say when I first heard it, I didn't really absorb it. That's not totally true because I was fascinated by it from the start. Mm. But at the same time, like something clicked with me where, you know, I'm trying to like understand it from like a Western perspective, and you can't because. Even though that was like not, it has not nothing super, to do with us. Yeah, it has nothing to do with <laughs> you us. Know? That, that's a, that you, you just, yeah, you summarized it perfectly. It's, uh, but that that can lead to an adventure, you know. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I just I kind of love those record. It's not like they grow on trees. It's, I'm not flush with Mozambican guitar records all the time, but no, I mean all this stuff is interesting. Super, super tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, the one before that is an example of a super, super tough record. Um, My God, also yeah. mid fifties, but that was we were discussing when it was playing. Um, by that time, this type of music called taharab is a type of um, Arabic influence or Arab influence music that stems from Egyptian music and the music from the Persian Gulf, which is sort of oud-driven music with singing, sometimes percussion, you know. And uh, in general, I'm describing this very generally. Uh, and this Tahra music is from Mombasa, Kenya, and Zanzibar, so like coastal East Africa. And... In the early days of recording, well, let's say 1928 to maybe 1931, there was quite a lot of it recorded. It's all really tough to find. Odeon, Columbia, and HMV. Sometimes they would ship the artists to India to record. Uh, Pathé shipped um, artists to France to record hmm. from from Zanzibar and Mombasa. Wow. Yeah, it's a hike. And uh, and total and Columbia recorded on site. Yeah. Um. So did Odeon. And uh, then it just stopped. That was it. After like 1930, it was it was nothing, you know. Uh, very periodically, that would um, appear, that kind of music would appear, but not much. What kind of took its place was a different kind of tarab that was based on Indian and Bollywood orchestra hmm. uh, style. You may have seen the name Yassin. Oh, sure. In a lot, he was probably the most famous East African singer at that time. And he sang almost kind of a croony Bollywood style. But you'd have these East African, Indian slash African slash Middle Eastern orchestras backing him yeah, up. Yeah, I've had those records. but I didn't Exactly. Um, and so that was what was prevalent at the time that this, the, the, um, First record we played there, is, which is by Siti Masika and Party with the Suleiman Orchestra. And that really is kind of anomalous. There wasn't a lot of this music being rec recorded in East Africa at the time with that oud-driven Persian Gulf-influenced uh, music yeah, at that time. Incredible. It kind yeah. of sticks out. There probably is much that I haven't heard, though. But just we from my experience, we gotta find mm, it. not a lot You know, from that period. Where the period. hell are you going to find it? It's a good question, but you know what? In the late 1950s, I believe, it's been documented that there were 75 active 78 labels in East Africa. Hmm. Phenomenal. But there wasn't a big East African diaspora. They were pressed locally, mostly. Um, whereas, you know, 
uh, West Africa had connections, and Congo had connections with Britain and France. A lot of the records were pressed there. They, right, the right. records turn up there sometimes. Uh, North Africa, obviously a big French connection. Um, and those records turn up periodically, not at their point of sale. You know, they right. and 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 I think, you know, as collectors, they, they turn up outside of that area, so you can find them. But East African records are different. They don't turn up much outside of the region itself. You know, it's kind of a little interesting wrinkle, geographic wrinkle, and you're talking about. I'm not saying this necessarily from the point of a collector, but from the point of someone who was trying to understand the industry and where records went, who who consumed them, where they went. Because, as you know, these records turn up sometimes everywhere but the place they're supposed to be. Yeah, they travel all over the place, like like mail. You know, they're they're who knows? You you know, you go to Canada and somebody opens up a record cabinet and there's a there's you know ten Nigerian records. Why? Well, who knows? You, you know, never know. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Uh, All right. Well, thanks a lot for doing the show. Sure, my uh, pleasure, it was man. extremely extremely pleasurable. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad we could work it out. Oh, me too, man. And uh, tell us, tell everybody what we're going to finish up with. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I figured we'll have a little. Uh, relaxing tune from <laughs> Peru. Uh, it's from 1928 um, from Arequipa, Peru, recorded for Victor. Uh, they would go back and forth, and they would, they would hit Peru, actually. They're, those recordings from that period, I think, are just beautiful. They're really, really great, you know? Um, and this band is called Estudiantina Dunker, and they were from a, a probably what was then was quite quite smaller um, a little city on Lake Titicaca called Puno. And these Estudiantinas were sort of like semi-professional string groups. Okay. That played for dances and things like that. All and right, cool, yeah, man. That's it. Thanks for doing it. Absolutely. I'm going to go back and listen to this again over and over. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here yeah. we go. <laughs> Thank you.
And as for the audience, so long for a while. We love That's you. That's all the songs for a while. We love you. We love you, audience. Thanks for tuning in to John's old-time radio show. Ooh, that was nice. Please join us next time, where John will chastise you, call you stupid, and say fuck off. Thank you, and good night. Well, That's I'm, great. I'm great. I'm going to use that in every Good. show. Every show is going to end That's with that from now on. That's a career she could have had.